telling people you can't think what you think, you can't feel what you feel about, and you fill in the blank as appropriate, people with different color skin, people with different religious beliefs, people who have different you know, geopolitical priorities than you do. I don't think that that's persuasive. And so, I mean, there's a big difference between proudly standing up for yourself and being di- diligent and trying to persuade people that those ideas are not ideas that are worth holding on to versus silencing other people to prevent them from at least outwardly manifesting that that's what, that's what they think. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. All right, folks, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Some housekeeping before we get started today. We are going to send out our first ever listener survey, and it should come out a few days after this episode drops. So if this episode drops on Thursday, you can maybe expect it on the following Monday or Tuesday. We're going to be asking our listeners some questions we've never asked you guys, like where do you listen to your podcast? What type of episodes do you like to listen to? If you're a longtime listener of the show, sometimes we do live events, sometimes we do history podcasts, sometimes we do podcasts focused on philosophy and or law. Sometimes our discussions focus on campus issues. Sometimes they focus on off-campus issues. We want to know the types of episodes that you like to hear the most. We also want to know at what length you'd like to hear your podcasts and what sort of guests you might want to hear from in the future. So anything, any ideas that you have for the show, we hope you will share with us in this survey. And again, this will go out a few days after this episode drops. And so you will, after you hear me (laughs) record this introduction, have time to go and sign up for the, so to speak, email newsletter, which if you don't subscribe to already, you should. And you can subscribe to that in one of two ways. You can go to the fire.org and subscribe to our general fire email address. And after you put in your email, uh, you will have the option to click to subscribe to the, so to speak newsletter. Alternatively, you can go to sotospeakpodcast.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you'll have an option to subscribe to the So To Speak newsletter there. So thefire.org, put in your email address anywhere, click the subscribe to So To Speak newsletter option, or go to sotospeakpodcast.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up for the So To Speak newsletter there. The next episode, actually is our 200th episode. It's hard to believe we started recording this podcast in April of 2016 with our first guest, Jonathan Rausch. So it's probably about time that we do a listener survey. So please subscribe to the email newsletter and share your feedback with us so we can make the next 200 episodes even better than the first 200 episodes were. Okay. With that housekeeping out of the way, today's podcast is going to be discussing something that's in the news can't miss and has been a hot topic of conversation and work. Oh my God. Are we going to talk about the Britney Spears book? (laughs) The one that beat your book out on the bestsellers list, Greg? (laughs) Hurtful. (laughs) My my wife is listening to that book right now. Um, So I've been, I guess, reading it or listening to it uh, vicariously through my wife. Uh, But Greg, as our listeners know, if they listen to a few podcasts ago, has his own book out right now, The Canceling of the American Mind. And uh, well, you have the Britney Spears book, Greg, and you have, of course, the Israel-Hamas war to contend with uh, when this comes out. And it's it's both been a spur for media requests for you um, because the Israel-Hamas war, as we're about to discuss, has resulted in tensions for free speech on campus as well as questions about cancel culture. Uh, but it's also resulted in a lot of news shows, for example, covering nothing else besides the Israel-Hamas war. So uh, as you can hear, Greg Lukianoff, president and CEO Hi. of FIRE, is joining us on today's podcast. Along with Ronnie London, who was on the last episode about the Supreme Court. Ronnie is, of course, our general counsel. Ronnie, welcome back again. Thank you, Nico. Happy to be back. And Alex Mori, who is the director of campus rights advocacy here at FIRE and has taken, what, Alex, probably like 400 media requests since uh, the attacks on Israel on October 7th. Uh, have you had time to do anything else? 
Yeah, you know, I've squeezed in a few other things, but I'm so happy to be here and that you are not sick of hearing my voice quite yet. But lots of things still yet to talk about. Yeah, let's just dive right in. Obviously, on October 7th, um, that morning here in the United States, uh, there were attacks uh, on Israeli civilians um, by Hamas, something like 1,500 dead, 240 taken hostage uh, into the Gaza Strip. We knew when we arrived at work on Monday, and we were discussing it over the weekend as it was unfolding, in fact, uh, that this would become a moment for free speech on campus. Uh, I sent an all-staff email saying as much. And we knew that because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for years has been a source of tension uh, on on campus. Uh, Passions run high, and anytime passions run high on any sort of issue, uh, whether it's abortion or race, uh, censorship soon follows. Uh, And Greg, in one of those first meetings, you were talking about some of your experiences after terrorist events and what that meant for for campus free speech, particularly in the wake of 9-11. Uh, you wrote a blog post on your substack, The Eternally Radical Idea. Can you talk a little bit about your first thoughts uh, after October 7th and what you expected we would see on campus? Well, honestly, I mean, my first thoughts um, after October 7th were just how monstrous the attacks were themselves. I mean, the I, I started right after 9-11, and even though those were monstrous attacks. They didn't have the almost like personal element of people being kidnapped and raped and butchered. Um, so, I, I mean, th- th- there was a vividness to what happened that really terrified the hell out of everybody. I had the phrase um, from one of the videos that got shared, um, uh, just a little boy saying, to him, Daddy's dead. It's not a prank. He's dead. And just, I, I'm a dad myself, and I just c- couldn't get that out of my head. So the first thing was just how visceral and awful it was. Um, And I kind of predicted things slightly wrong. Um, I thought it was going to be a lot more like what we saw after 9-11, because people may not know this, but it's a fun fact about me. To find an apartment at Philadelphia, I was living in San Francisco at the time, I landed at 9, 10 a.m. on September 11th, 2001, um, at the Philadelphia airport and got stuck in Philly for a whole week because um, younger people won't know this. There was no, the, the, the airways got completely shut down. You, you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't take a flight. I couldn't get back home. Um, and all of my early cases, uh, almost all of them, were, were related to 9-11. My first letter was defending Richard Berthold, a guy who joked um, on September 11th, insensitively, but nonetheless a joke, anyone who can blow up the Pentagon has my vote. Um, and he eventually was forced out. Uh, we had the Samuel Arian case. You know, that's a guy who after, you know, was alleged to have ties to terrorism, which later he was indicted on. Um, and, uh, but he, there was a Bill O'Reilly released a video of him from 1989 saying, uh, death to Israel. And then of course, later there was the Ward Churchill case, even though the speech, uh, that, that, that he got in trouble for was right around nine 11. Um, and it was about nine 11. He called the victims little Eichmanns. Um, that, that didn't really come to light until about 2005, or at least nobody paid attention to it at the time. And I kind of thought that after October 7th, it would be a lot like we saw um, then. And the predictable things were, one, um, there would be demands for the punishment of student and professors coming from off campus. Two, um, campuses would suddenly rediscover free speech, um, academic freedom, because they always do when they perceive a threat as coming from off campus. That's embarrassingly predictable. They're much more cowardly when, when the threat comes from students or faculty or administrators on campus. Um, and But I did think we were going to see a big uptick in people getting in trouble for pro-Palestinian speech. And it hasn't really been that different of a year for fire. Now, I, I, when I say this, people sometimes misunderstand what I'm saying, as in, oh, no, it's, it's, it's like, like uh, it, it, it's... Uh, everything's fine. No, no, no. What people don't get is how bad a normal year is at fire at this point. Like how many case submissions we get in a normal year. It's been particularly awful for the last six years, um, as we've seen. And that's a big theme of canceling of the American mind. 
Uh, we did see the universities suddenly rediscover free speech. I've written somewhat cynically about whether or not they're going to live up to that. My my guess is no. Um, uh, Harvard, you know, f- finished dead last for a reason in our in our campus free speech ranking. So they got a lot to prove there. Um, and uh, and but yeah, so far a lot of the cases that have come up have been ones that you know are a little bit close to the line. Um, and one thing that has been horrifying to see on campus is I can't remember, maybe maybe in 2020, um, but I've seen this this many incidents of true threats, you know, people actually, you know, calling, uh, issuing non-protected death threats or uh, actual assault, you know, students grabbing each other, for example. There's lots of videos of that and grabbing someone is assault. Um, so, uh, and, and then also things that, uh, sound like, uh, either outright discrimination or discriminatory harassment, like the professor at Stanford who had all his Jewish students identify, then go to the corner to, um, uh, and, and then berating them for being colonizers who had murdered more people than, uh, died in the Holocaust. And of course, allegedly we, there were, there were some, there were some facts or alleged facts that came out after that, that suggested that maybe the initial telling of that story was not all, you know, was, was not all on the up and up, but if it was as alleged, you know, that definitely would not be Protected. Yeah, that, that, that I mean, there were a couple factors that made it cross the line, but yeah, we we always have to uh, double and tri- triple check everything. So so far, it's been an interesting time on campus. Um, I think actually a lot of the uh, a lot of the blacklisting and that kind of stuff is happening more from private companies and that sort of stuff. And that analysis is always interesting since we link our definition of cancel culture to public employee law. But that's a that's a whole other digression. Um. So yeah, it, it, it's been um, it. I, I my biggest hope out of this would be that the people who are suddenly discovering cancel culture, like you're watching people on 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 Twitter who who have not paid any attention to this, being like, "Oh my God!" Suddenly, people are getting in trouble for their political opinions, and it's like, um, suddenly, it, it, it's been out of control for, for 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 years now, and you haven't paid any attention to this whatsoever. And I was hoping that there might be a real reevaluation of how simplistic the idea of consequence culture is, or accountability culture. Maybe if the consequence culture you're talking about is someone losing their job for their opinion, maybe that's not a consequence that you should write off so so easily. But I, I, I there was an interview in Politico this past weekend that seemed to just completely erase the past six years. They, they, they were like, oh, we haven't seen anything like this since 9-11 or McCarthyism. It's like, you know, 2020 and 2021 were the two worst years we've seen in our history in terms of like professor cancellations. And I do point out that, you know, a substantial portion of that, at least in 2022, was was from the right as well. Um, but that we just went through a period that we can't find any parallel to in the last 50 years since the law has been established on, on college campuses. And there seems to be some determination to just forget about it or, or not take it or, or not reevaluate or take it seriously. Yeah. What happened in 2020 after the George or during the George Floyd protests was you had all these colleges and universities issue I mean, statements, right? And then you had all these dissenting faculty who were, uh, uh, targeted in many cases for their speech or colleges and universities were trying to find something else they had done to bring them up on charges, uh, disciplinary actions in order to get them kicked off of campus. And I remember our campus rights advocacy department working overtime uh, during that period. And if you just looked at our case submissions between 2018, 2019, and 2020, it was like a hockey stick. Uh, and I, I feel like if you probably look at the, the months preceding the October 7th attack, you know, where we already had elevated case submissions, you're going to see a similar increase in them. And Greg, you mentioned trying to sort truth from falsehood. Uh, that's been a challenge for us as we investigate all these cases with heated rhetoric, particularly on X, formerly known as Twitter, right? It's important that you just don't take at face value anything that's alleged. I remember there was this one video uh, at one of the University of California schools where it sounded like one of the chants was Israel, Israel, you can't hide. We want Jewish genocide. When we did a little bit more digging, it was actually Israel, Israel, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. Uh, 
you know, it might not make a substantive difference from the protective speech analysis or, analysis, or it might, you know, I, I, it's hard to know and the audio wasn't great. Uh, but those are just things that we don't need to double and triple check any, you know, in any case, but particularly in cases where, uh, passions are running high. Yeah. It's like the fog of war effect. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw this a little bit after uh, the George or during the George Floyd protests too, but Alex and Ronnie, you two are sitting in in our morning campus rights advocacy meetings, which we have every day where we review the case intake, uh, both those who submitted their cases at thefire.org, but also things that we've discovered through following uh, the conversation on X or following news reports. Uh, I'd like to hear from both of you your kind of first blush perspective uh, on the moment. Maybe Alex, starting with you, since we've already heard your voice, <laughs> and sure. you are the director, so, of course. Sure. So, I mean, I am surprised, along with Greg and and others at Fire, that we have not seen more cases come in specifically about. Uh, speech around this issue. That said, we are, you know, incredibly busy, and I think generally tensions are higher on campus because of um, because of the Israel Hamas situation. What I will say is, in hindsight, I guess it shouldn't surprise me too much because of the level of division that there already is on campus around this particular issue. So normally. Uh, when we have a situation, we'll take George Floyd or COVID or, you know, even abortion, there is sort of a prevailing popular view on most campuses. Typically it trends, you know, progressive or ultra progressive. And so colleges feel empowered to speak out on that one progressive viewpoint. You know, George Floyd's murder was bad and we're here to support students and anybody who suggests otherwise might need to come into an administrator's office. Or, uh, you know, we are pro-vaccine with COVID and if you dissent from that, then maybe you're going to have a problem. That's sort of the overt or subtext uh, going on, you know, message going on there. That said, with the Israel Hamas stuff, there are very passionate entrenched viewpoints um, with lots of people on both sides. So I think what's been really interesting is that administrators don't seem to feel as empowered to come down strongly on one side or another. And that's been, you know, if you ever wanted a, uh, if you ever wanted a, um, you know, if you want evidence of that, there's nothing better than the multiple statements that so many administrators have had to put out. Normally, it's the one statement, they say their thing, we all go on with our day. But now it's like, oh, well, donors wrote us after the first statement. So now we're putting out a second statement, you know, really criticizing Hamas this time. And then the pro-Palestine people are weighing in and then out comes statement number three. So uh, it has been really interesting to see administrators you know, kind of uh, reap what they've been sowing in terms of coming down very strongly on a lot of these, you know, social and political issues one way or another. Now, here we have a situation where it's impossible to do that and make everyone or anyone really happy. And so that's why we've been, uh, we've been encouraging them not to do that at all. So you have, so you have a divided campus uh, in parts, right? Uh, would it be safe to say probably that majority of these student bodies, because they're young people and young people tend to be liberal or, or progressive, that they're generally more pro-Palestinian than perhaps uh, the donors or alumni of the school? I remember I saw a Harvard-Harris poll that found that 51% of Americans aged 18 to 24 believe that Hamas was justified in its terrorist attacks. Uh, on October 7th. Meanwhile, you have all these letters that are being sent to these colleges or universities condemning them for not coming out more strongly in their condemnations of what happened on October 7th. So you have, you know, you have a, a student body and a faculty that perhaps has a prevailing viewpoint that's one way, and then you have an alumni and, and perhaps supporter base that's, that's another way. And of course, you're painting with broad brushstrokes here, which is never entirely accurate, but uh, that's maybe the dynamic that people are seeing as they're, as they're watching the headlines and seeing all these donor letter come, come in, as well as all these student protests on campus, which seem to be, have these, this, this large number of students uh, supporting the Palestinians uh, in this conflict. Yeah, I would say that, you know, 
if you look at, you know, the U.S., I would expect that there would be a much larger population of, you know, pro-Palestinian supporters on the average college campus. And of course, that goes way up when when you're talking about a much more progressive campus, you know, the Wellesleys and the Smith colleges and that sort of thing. And, and of course, the, the Ivy Leagues, the Harvards and the Yales. Uh, I will say, though, that there certainly are vocal populations of Jewish students. There are Hillels on many, many campuses. So it's it's definitely a much more unusual situation. But yeah, lots of lots of pro-Palestine sentiments coming out of our our universities. And I would say that those are the those are the students that we are seeing get complaints about them. Students and faculty um, who have expressed pro-Palestine sentiments, they're the ones that are getting reported. Ronnie, can I ask you a little bit? We just had a blog post last week uh, reiterating kind of the line between protected expression and unprotected expression. We've seen some of these cases cut much closer to the bone of unprotected expression on campus than we typically do. And so it's, you know, it's even more important that we get the facts right, because anytime you're venturing into the, into the category of unprotected speech, it's a fact-intensive analysis. We already mentioned, for example, the case of the faculty member who was alleged to have you know, separated Jewish and non-student Jewish students in the classroom, told the Jewish students to go to the corner potentially with their belongings. We don't know. We're trying to get the facts still. Uh, and then berating them, allegedly, uh, about what's been happening in Palestine, uh, Pal- in, in Gaza Strip, in Palestine, and, and then comparing that to, um, to the Nazis and the Holocaust. But you also have situations where students are taking down Israeli hostage posters. We wrote about that as well. We have situations where you have students allegedly, and the facts here are in dispute as well, barricading other students uh, in, a, in libraries. And then you have the situation at Cornell, right, where someone made death threats, true threats uh, against some of the Jewish uh, student groups or buildings or housing on campus. Uh, so, Ronnie, can you talk a little bit about how we've been trying to sort that out in our case intake process? Yeah. And, and you know, kind of chaining off the question you asked Alex as well. I mean, if there's anything that's kind of been driven home by the current situation, um, it's the importance and difficulty of being principled in the application of the principles surrounding free speech. And that's both in terms of making sure that you are applying them in an even-handed way, especially when uh, emotions are running so high. I mean, there's a lot that is being said, um, that is being, you know, performed, that is being put out there on campus that is very upsetting to large number of students on all sides. And you're reminded of the, you know, for example, First Amendment jurisprudence, where it talks about how the First Amendment protects speech that is, you know, shabby and upsetting and difficult. And, you know, it's important to ensure that you keep the starch in those standards. At the same time, as you said, we just put out uh, a post last week that talks about uh, not only the importance of maintaining the doctrinal lines in the various categories of unprotected speech, but also when speech crosses those lines, enforcing those doctrines as well, whether it be true threat or incitement or fighting words. Because if you have these categories and you treat them as if nothing can ever really fall into them, you don't really have any categories and you don't have a doctrine where speech can ever be punished. And that's not the standard. Um, you know, and, and what we've been seeing a lot on campus in some of the cases that come in is, for example, like you said, in Cornell, that's, you know, the kind of thing that when you say you are going to carry out murders on campus, that's a true threat. I mean, it's directed towards a specific target. Um, it is, you know, a present intent to do something. Um, whereas in other cases, things may feel or sound threatening but because they don't meet the standards, we had, for instance, a uh, professor who went on Twitter and talked about going after, you know, Jewish journalists, for example. And while that is, you know, wildly 
unfree speech friendly and it is very, it is disturbing and troubling it didn't satisfy the full standard for what constitutes a, a true threat necessarily and the default is if something doesn't fall into a category of unprotected speech it is protected speech and therefore at least in so far as government actors they are you know circumscribed and in some play instances essentially prevented from being able to sanction or punish or otherwise target that speech and so it's very important i think to a i think a little bit steal yourself as a free speech advocate to recognizing that some of what you're going to be advocating protection for or tolerance of is going to be very upsetting on the other hand you know you also have to be principled in allowing speech that crosses the lines into the various categories where action is permitted for those for, for that kind of response to go forward. Well, you hear a lot about this chant that's common on on and off campus uh, which is from the river to the sea Palestine will be free uh, and there have been allegations that that would be unprotected speech because it essentially uh, you know critics would argue uh, calls for the the destruction potentially violent, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that's assumption, the violent destruction of, of the state of Israel. Uh, you've been, you've heard it alleged that it's eliminationist language, which if, you know, you're a Jew Jewish student or you have a Jewish background, uh, there's been a history of, of the use of el eliminationist language. So Ronnie, how do we think about that phrase and, and when it may or may not cross the line into unprotected speech? Well, I mean, it's fairly well established in our jurisprudence that advocating violence philosophically or the need for violence is protected if you are not directly inciting imminent violence or imminent lawless activity, right? It is protected speech to philosophically say that violence or, you know, or rising up or whatever it happens to be is a necessary solution. And that can be whether you mean it literally or hyperbolically. So I can envision situations where given other factors, for example, if you are chasing someone across the quad and yelling in that, at that at them, then yeah, that could rise to the level of a true threat. Or if you're doing it every day to the same person, it could rise to the level of discriminatory harassment. But the fact of the matter is, the same would be true if you were chasing a Jewish student across campus, shouting Havanagila to them. It's not the content of what you're saying. It's the other contextual factors that make it threatening. This, this, the slogan, for lack of a better word, that you asked about, standing alone by itself, it may well be abhorrent. But as a matter of whether it's a protected speech um, in the abstract, you know, that that is fairly well established. I, I, I also want to point out something else that's protected about the that slogan. It's also protected to claim that that slogan really means that you want a peaceful, multi-ethnic, democratic society from the from the river to the sea, even if that seems a bit intellectually dishonest. That, that was one of the spins that, um, that I saw recently. Yeah. But but is it protected? Absolutely. But Ronnie is right. That's one of the interesting things about, um, you know, threats uh, analysis is that it's always contextual, like essentially things that wouldn't uh, that might be protected um, left entirely to themselves in certain contexts. You know, it, 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 if it's understood by a reasonable person to be conveying an intention of bodily harm or death. Well, I want to Greg, Greg I'm, I'm glad you chimed in because I want to talk about some of the things we saw in the first days after October 7th. Uh, the first things we saw were letters from donors, alumni to colleges and universities demanding that they condemn uh, the Hamas uh, terrorist attack on October 7th. And meanwhile, you had students um, writing letters or issuing statements uh, that suggested support for what Hamas did. For example, at NYU Law, you had the student Rhina Workman, who was president of the NYU Student Bar Association, uh, sending a statement to that association, uh, claiming that Israel bears full responsibility for this tremendous loss of life. And Rhina's uh, job offer from the law firm Winston Strawn was uh, rescinded as a result. You also had the uh, letter sent by, I believe, 34 Harvard student organizations uh, 
that said that said that they hold Israel, the Israeli regime entirely responsible for what happened. And then in, in the wake of that, you have a, a bus circling campus that's uh, identifying some of the students who were potentially involved in the drafting of that letter or signed on to that letter. Uh, the donor letters continue to come uh, just this week, or maybe it was just yesterday. Uh, we're recording it on what, November 6th. Uh, Bill Ackman, the billionaire head fund manager, wrote a long letter that he posted on X to the uh, Harvard administration that called for them to uh, subject students to disciplinary actions if they've been chanting intifada and other eliminationist statements. Uh, Also said the university should review the student Slack message boards to identify those students who have made anti-Semitic statements or shared anti-Semitic imagery. These students should also be referred to the administrative board for appropriate disciplinary action. And then he raises uh, kind of a double standards point that I'd like you, Greg, to maybe address as well. He said, how would Harvard respond if a trans student attempted to walk by an anti-LGBTQIA demonstration on the HBS campus and was subject to the same abuse that the Jewish HBS students, I assume that refers to Harvard Business School, yeah, experienced at the Free Palestine demonstration on October 18th. How would you respond to a Harvard white supremacist protest where students shouted Tulsa, Tulsa, Tulsa from the Atlantic to the Pacific, America should be free of black people. So Greg, I, I, I apologize for the compound question, but uh, I was wondering. <laughs> you have an hour and a half um, to, to, to go all the, all the pat, uh, issue spotting and that. Are, so you're asking specifically about the statements or where, where would you like me to well, begin? Well, you know, you have these donors and, and these people off campus who are rescinding job applications saying students should be, uh, should be investigated for what I think at FIRE we would say is protected, even if um, offensive speech. You have uh, buses or vans going around campus with LED screens identifying students uh, potentially for punishment. So like you just those came are, out with a book called are, The Canceling of the American yeah, Mind. Those are, those are three, three long answers. Um, so uh, part one, um, the initial uh, statements uh, that universities issued. Um, the FIRE supports the Calvin Report. We like institutional neutrality or often sometimes called uh, institutional restraint. Um, at the same time, people who said, oh, now you're arguing for institutional restraint on the one topic that you, you think might get you in trouble with your faculty administrators and some of your students um, and calling sort of BS on that, I think I thought was actually entirely fair. We, we, we want the outcome of schools adopting uh, the Calvin Report. Uh, but schools that never did this in the past and comment on every other major event that ever happened suddenly being silent or extremely restrained on on this topic, partially because taking a strong anti-Hamas position would be, frankly, unpopular among some of the most aggressive activists on, on campus, uh, you know, was something that deserved to be called out. And one thing that, that, that I, I do want to point out here, and, and John Haidt uh, pointed this out on his Substack. That to a degree, cancel culture explains the behavior of university presidents because they were university presidents, and and, and a, a lot of the ones that I know the most about are generally pretty pro-Israel and definitely horrified by the by the uh, terrorist attacks, um, and they were scared, you know, of their own activists, of their own professors, of their own students to actually say what they really think. So, to the extent to which donors were saying you know, make a statement about this. One of the things the donors knew was that in many cases it was the university president who wanted to say something about it. They were just too cowardly um, to say that. Um, when it comes to the uh, statements, the, the letter that people, that the Harvard people signed um, blaming Israel uh, for the, entirely for the attacks while the attacks were still going on, um, I can definitely understand people being a little horrified by that um, because, you know, like the, the, the timing was... Um, pretty shocking. Um, in terms of the, the, the um, response from uh, employers, you know, saying that they didn't want to hire somebody who would immediately sign that, the most you can do in a situation where the First Amendment doesn't apply is make a strong argument like we do in Canceling of the American Mind for the principle of everybody's entitled to their opinion. And we think that we've gotten too far away from some of the norms of a free society. Um, now, first of all, of course, a private company can hire whoever they want and we really want them, however, to consider free speech culture and to consider the idea that my employees should be allowed to have opinions as well. Do I think that that could overcome, um, 
a lot of the cases we talk about in counseling in the American mind, like where a journalist like retweeted a off color joke. I hope so. Um, is that necessarily gonna gonna lead a Goldman Sachs to want to hire someone they think actually might be anti Semitic or couldn't necessarily work with this with, with Israel as a client? Might not be enough, but we still have to make the argument for it, it, all things being equal. You know, people are in, in, uh, entitled uh, to their opinion. Now, this is a, just a consideration that we want people to have when they're uh, assessing right. the fallout, right? And, and up until this point, I mean, your book speaks to this considerably. It's like people aren't thinking about what the, it would mean for a culture yeah. where all it takes is a mob to get angry at someone for an, an opinion that's unrelated to their job well, to get them and, fired, right? And, and the thing, and the, and the point that I made on, on a Reason podcast um, that you know I, I keep on making is think about what society would look like if we have a strong First Amendment, but you can't have a job and honestly say, what your opinion is. And that shouldn't sound too far-fetched because that's what it started to look like in 2020 and 2021, that essentially the company has a political point of view and you need to agree with it, or you could be in big trouble or you could lose your job. And I don't think that's, uh, you know, that that's necessarily healthy. And well, actually, I don't think that's healthy. Um, but all, all the time being clear, you know, it's like they have the right to, but we want people to think about uh, free speech uh, culture as well. Uh, when it comes to the uh, uh, the, the activity by accuracy in media um, with the truck driving around Harvard with the pictures of, of some of the students' names on them um, uh, and, and pictures, I didn't like that. I, I, I think that's, you know, targeting the students is, is, is something that I, I you know, I, I don't think is a good thing to do. That being said, uh, there have been a number of, of students calling this doxing and doxing doesn't have a specific legal meaning, um, but it usually means uh, revealing information that could actually get someone, you know, really hurt. And so usually, like, I always take it to mean releasing someone's home address, phone number, that kind of stuff. Just releasing someone's picture, though, that can't possibly be doxing. Uh, partially because, it, and I've seen this expectation develop on campus, that if you're shouting someone down, um, and someone takes a video of it that you can't actually post that because that 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 because the students you know that would be doxing the student. It's like no, that 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 would mean a weird level of uh, required anonymity. Like I have to respect your anonymity as a censor, as someone who's doing something really kind of terrible, and I can't show. I, and unlike any other citizen in the entire country, gets so I I do think that. The uh, some of the the claims of doxing, you know, like uh, are just wrong. How and by the way, even doxing revealing public information is still actually First Amendment protected. I just think it's you know not a not a commendable behavior by, by any stretch of the imagination. Now people ask then, well, but they're getting death threats. I'm like, then go after the people doing the death threats. Going after the people doing the harassment. That's not protected. And, and actually, I, I'm pretty aggressive on threats. I'm like, actually, do. Uh, prosecute, uh, the, the, you, know, you know, those kind of threats. When it comes to, uh, you know, the situation with cancel culture related corporations, we try to factor in, um, and we do this more in the appendix to not bog it down too much, uh, some of the analysis of public employee law. So there are different rules if, say, you're, you're a spokesperson for an organization. Basically, if you're a spokesperson for the president, you don't have additional free speech rights. Like if you say something that you, you can't say, oh, with my non-spokesman person uh, hat off, I completely disagree with the president. Like that's you're, you're going to lose your job. Um and generally, and you know, within the uh, within the law, uh, there is the, the Pickering standard, which basically says, which we think stands for more or less the principle that uh, you should have a, a freedom to comment on issues of public concern in in, in your private time. But even that, you know, uh, in, in public employment law, it's like they they will factor in things kind of like, let's say someone we find out someone's a raving racist. Can they not fire them if they're afraid that they can't work with a black employees? And there's existing law on this that actually makes it a more uh, common sense standard. But the bottom line for us when we're simply arguing free speech culture is that we need to, and we should uh, try to take seriously the fact that people are going to have opinions that, um, that, uh, that you might disagree with who could still be excellent employees. But to, two more two more caveats on that though. One, um, I think that the people who signed, if you don't want to hire someone because you think they signed that, uh, that, that letter, 
definitely, I think you should check in with them because a lot of people who thought, like who actually uh, were accused of being on the letter didn't even see the letter, uh, let alone know they were on it. So you might be, you know, falsely accusing someone. And, and yeah, can, can I just say one thing on that yeah. too? Because I used to be the president of a student organization on campus. And to the extent you think student organizations have everything together and are very organized, oh, yeah. uh, Nope. They aren't. Um, yeah. <laughs> or monolithic. Yeah, or monolithic. Or monolithic. Yeah. So I was I was surprised actually when I saw the letter come out, because I think it was just a day or two after the attacks, that they could organize the membership of all these 34 different student organizations to get their feedback on whether they should sign it on the letter. I was like, this is yeah, this is a monumental uh, undertaking and very impressive if it could actually be accomplished. So when I saw that 34 student organizations signed on, one of my initial reactions was like, there are going to be some very displeased students to see that their organization had signed on to this when, you know, you can't really presume that they had. And then, and then the days afterwards, you heard that some of them hadn't even seen the letter. Yeah. So, and, and those are the two caveats. I, I think the, the best practice, particularly if you extend an offer to someone, is talk, talk to the person directly. F- figure out what they, you know, give them a chance to, to, to defend themselves, essentially, and find out, you know, most importantly, kind of like, is this person being accused of doing something they didn't even do? Um, but on the other hand, one thing that I, I have said a lot is I think we'd be living in a much healthier country if we drew less of our ruling class from elite, <laughs> elite colleges. And partially because a lot of schools, a lot of companies after coddling the American mind have come to me in height and said, the new crop of employees want me, want my organization to take political positions on every topic. And they want me to fire people who don't agree with their politics. Alex, I wanted to ask you, uh, I think it was just the day before the, the attacks, you were at the University of Chicago for a symposium on campus free speech uh, where you had discussed extensively uh, the Calvin Report and and told the audience that Fire more or less endorsed that. Uh, quite the timing, I guess, uh, just before the October 7th uh, attacks. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Calvin Report, it's a, it's a statement issued by the University of Chicago in what, ni- uh, 1967? if I have my years correct, where they essentially said that the strong presumption should be against the university taking uh, stances on social and political issues. And that the university is the host and sponsor of critics, but it is not itself the critic. So in other words, it facilitates the sort of dialogue and criticism that you want to see in society brought writ large, the marketplace of ideas, but it is not, it is not itself the critic or a, vo- uh, a voice for any particular social or political issue. And we've seen, obviously, the University of Chicago hasn't, if I'm not mistaken, the institution itself hasn't issued a statement on the attacks. Um, and I believe the, that Stanford initially took this position too as a result of kind of the position it had, it had articulated and the wisdom it had articulated around the Calvin Report in the wake of the Judge Duncan uh, shout down earlier this year. So can you talk a little bit about that appearance, Alex, and what you're seeing from colleges and universities with regard to institutional neutrality? Sure. Well, I had Paul Alavisatos, the president of the University of Chicago, fist pumping in the like <laughs> in the front row of uh, the discussion when I said, you know, fire, actually, you guys hear, you know, folks, you'll hear it here first. Fire is planning to adopt uh, or formally endorse the Calvin report in the coming days because you know we it, it has it had been a conversation at fire for you know since our inception we always thought that Calvin was you know there was wisdom to Calvin there's wisdom in the idea that uh, universities will focus their resources on supporting students and faculty discussions rather than taking political and social positions themselves. That said, we're a free speech org and, you know, public and private school administrators have their own expressive, you know, they they are able to express their own viewpoints. Administrators are college presidents. They can put out statements. They have the right to do that. So we don't love as a free speech organization to come out hard and say, you shouldn't be speaking president of X university. That said, it has become increasingly clear in the last several years. Um, the conversation at FIRE has you know, taken a big, uh, there's been a big uptick in probably the last 
three to six months saying, you know, we really should take another look at Calvin. We think that given the climate on American universities, on university campuses these days, it may be really difficult or even impossible for universities to create an ideal climate for free expression without removing themselves from the debate that students and faculty are having. And of course, we see you know, diversity initiatives, inclusion initiatives, equity initiatives, they're incredibly popular on many campuses. Um, you know, we don't take a position on that, but, you know, I think a lot of people would say that's for good unless reason. They, we want- unless they, uh, well, unless they serve as political litmus tests, for example, like the DEI statements that are often required of uh, faculty during their uh, review process or in the hiring process. Yeah. So I guess our position has always been look, you guys can do that as long as it doesn't cross the line into suppressing student or faculty views. And we have seen it do that repeatedly. So we definitely have DEI-type initiatives um, on on our radar. But all that is to say in the context of Calvin that we have seen many administrations centering DEI type initiatives to the utter exclusion of, you know, core student and faculty rights and what we've been in the business of doing for the last several years and particularly since this, you know, since October 7th is reminding universities that, you know, these two things need not be intention, but, you know, baked into a lot of the diversity type initiatives is this idea that, suppression of certain speech that is not sufficiently, you know, anti-racist or, you know, inclusive must be suppressed. And so we are telling schools, you know, look, you need to be starting from a place of institutional neutrality, of student and faculty rights are at the core of our educational mission, rather than centering these diversity type initiatives, which can force administrators to, you know, be considering censorship as a tool in their toolkit. And we are telling them, no, on public campuses, that is unlawful. Um, also on private campuses that promise free expression. So it's it's kind of, we're trying to move that conversation back to the core mission of a university. Yeah. Um, and th- there's, a, there's a word that um, a lot of people who are used to First Amendment work uh, off campus, um, but don't know as much about academic freedom tend to miss, and that's orthodoxy. It's very important for schools, if they're supposed to be actually um, institutions for the discovery of truth by chipping away at falsity, one thing that can really interfere with that is having an orthodoxy, something that everyone believes and is afraid to question. And unfortunately, we have campuses that have a lot more, a lot of orthodoxies these days. And one of the mechanisms by which you establish an orthodoxy is by having someone at the very top of the institution saying, "This is this organ, this is our our institutional position on the following things." And because I, and I watched this happen a lot, because at first I wasn't that pro Calvin, and and then over the years seeing professors go, "Okay, we just came out, you know, in favor of vaccines, for example," but I have some issues with actually these particular vaccines, and uh, am I now putting my job at risk for challenging the orthodoxy at this particular school? So we started to see the problem with the uh, the bully pulpit that the president's office could use as being something that did. Um, it, uh, it did impose orthodoxies and give people the message that this is a place that has very definite ideas about uh, w- w- what is true prior to you actually um, prior to you actually looking into it. And when it comes to the DEI um, administrators, I mean, this is something that people really need to understand: is that uh, e- even in, uh, even in books that I otherwise. Uh, badly disagree with, like um, uh, Michael Barabay's and Jennifer Ruth's It's Not About Free Speech, you know, they talk about DEI administrators and, and the uh, the investigations that usually happen behind the scenes into uh, into speech that's allegedly offensive. 
Um, and when it comes to a lot of the big cases, I, I, I didn't realize this until I asked Nicholas Krasakis. The, the crowd that surrounded Nicholas in 2015 at Silliman, there were DEI administrators in that crowd. The professor who first sort of sounded the alarm against Carol Hooven at Harvard, that was a DEI administrator. The administrator who met with students for hours in advance of, of, a, uh, of the Duncan shutdown. Then the um, Duncan shutdown lasted exactly 10 minutes, and then she got up and read a pre-prepared speech. DEI administrator. So a lot of like when people talk about DEI administrators as being uh, when there have been plans to actually like uh, limit the number of employees that you have, you also have to try to got to keep in mind that sometimes these are net negatives for uh, the environment for free speech. Sometimes they're the ones actually you know, leading the charge on getting professors in trouble. And sometimes they are kind of little orthodoxy offices. I'll never forget. Fire co-founder Alan Charles Coors uh, once saying, I believe in a video short documentary that we made about him, that speech codes def- depend for their very existence on the exercise of double standards. And Alex and Greg, when you guys were mentioning a lot of the censorship that we saw on campus surrounding COVID, uh, it made me think of uh, University of San Diego law professor Tom Smith, who for nothing more than saying on his blog post that those that believe the coronavirus did not come from a lab in Wuhan were, quote, swallowing a whole lot of Chinese cockswaddle. He got brought up on an investigation for that, was accused of being anti-Chinese, right? And so I think if you are a member of a campus Jewish community or you care deeply about uh, Jewish issues or the state of Israel and you see some of the language that's being expressed or some of the protests on campus that are very vehement, right? And using uh, <clears throat> what's perceived as like very offensive language. You say, okay, the guy who said that the coronavirus might've come from a lab in Wuhan, which ultimately was a position that the state department and other United States agencies believes is uh, likely or at least possible. You know, he gets brought up on an investigation, but these other students don't. To be clear, Fire thinks a lot of this uh, rhetoric is protected regardless on both sides. But it's just this exercise of double standards that you see that I think has pissed off a lot of these donors. Ronnie? Well, it's funny. You know, you mentioned the Coxwaddle thing now. And from where we're currently sitting, it seems almost quaint. Um, you know, you mentioned orthodoxy. Um, and, you know... You guys work with me. This isn't a surprise to you. Anyone who's listening that knows me, this isn't going to be a surprise. I have a very complicated relationship with my Judaism and having brought up being brought up Jewish. That's partly wrapped up in my feelings about religion generally. But when we talk about combating anti-Semitism, I wonder sometimes what does that mean? Does it mean stamping out anti-Semitic discrimination? where you are excluding people, where you are like the Harvard student walking across campus was getting jostled and manhandled going across campus. And if that's what we're talking about, th- those, those are obvious yeses. When you're talking about stamping out anti-Semitism and what you're really talking about is stamping out anti-Semitic speech and thought and making it so that they don't exist, that becomes more complicated Because even though it is offensive and abhorrent to some people and very upsetting and justifiably so, you're talking about restricting ideas and concepts. And I I have to be honest. I mean, I don't think that claiming the moral superiority and purporting to punish wrong think and thought crime is likely to defeat any kind of ism, whether it's racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, extremism, whatever it is, telling people you can't think what you think. You can't feel what you feel about, and you fill in the blank as appropriate, people with different color skin, people with different religious beliefs, people who have different you know, geopolitical priorities than you do. I don't think that that's persuasive. And so, I mean, there's a big difference between proudly standing up for yourself and being di- diligent and trying to persuade people that those ideas are not ideas that are worth holding on to versus silencing other people to prevent them from 
at least outwardly manifesting that that's what that's what they think. And that's when you start talking about what's the orthodoxy here that is being that is being advanced. And I think that's where you kind of fall into a danger zone of allowing censorship to do the work that persuasion ought to be doing. I mean, I think the model should be someone like Daryl Davis, not the thought police. And for those who don't know, Daryl Davis was a, a black musician. Is he still alive? <laughs> Sorry. Well, okay, is a black musician who would sit down and speak one-on-one with members of the Klan and confront them with the ideas that the Klan holds and that they hold, and ultimately was able to claim to have over 200 Klansmen turn over their robes to him and actually changed minds. And I think that's the model we want to be following, because that's the kind of change that endures. Telling people, okay, you are too vocal in your dislike or hatred or in your views. Go over there and be quiet. I don't know what you've accomplished other than insulating the hearers from hearing things that might upset them. And I don't think that's the appropriate goal. Ronnie, I'm going to stick with you because there are at least two other topics I want to get to before we wrap up here. Uh, you know, we've been talking about a lot of concepts right now that are, you know, are questions related to speech that can be fact intensive. Uh, is this protected? Is this not protected? One example of censorship that we've seen on college campuses that's pretty clear cut uh, involves the Student for Justice in Palestine student groups. There was a letter sent um, by the State University System of Florida Chancellor. Ray Rodriguez to uh, Florida public college presidents in which he essentially alleged that the students for justice in Palestine chapters were providing material support for, for terrorism as a result of a uh, day of resistance toolkit that they had on their website, which, uh, and he only kind of quotes one line to say that this qualifies as material support. The toolkit said, Palestinian students in exile are part of this movement, not in solidarity with this movement. And the, this movement refers to the um, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, and, which is a resistance movement um, that the Hamas terrorists were um, seen to be a, a part of. And then you had uh, the Anti-Defamation League and Brandeis send a letter to 200 college presidents across the country, uh, telling them that they should investigate their students for justice in Palestine chapters for material support for terrorism. So Ronnie, I was wondering if you could kind of unpack what it means to actually provide material support for terrorism and whether this toolkit that was proffered by the students for justice in Palestine national group qualifies as material support. Yeah. So, you know, material support for, you know, terrorism or extremism, you know, is not simply philosophical support, right? I mean, it, it, it requires, you know, an actual provision of something that advances the specific cause of engaging in the terrorism. And, and I feel kind of like I'm stealing Alex's thunder a bit here because she very eloquently wrote to the presidents of the state universities in Florida to say, you know, I hear what you're being told, you know, uh, from your from, from essentially your boss, for lack of a better word, but you cannot constitutionally do this without evidence that there's more than these student organizations advancing ideas. Um, and, you know, so far as I know, and to date, I don't think any state official in Florida has thus far cited anything that would in fact constitute material support. And as a result of what is really just advocacy, there is this uh, idea that you should, you know, investigate these student organizations. First of all, in Florida, the idea is that you should de-recognize them altogether, right? Um, and, and that, of course, if in response to pure advocacy, um, is not constitutional. But there's this idea that, you, you know, you should go around the country and investigate all of these student organizations on this, you know, kind of suspicion of what, you know, alliance, uh, affiliation, uh, you know, kind of having a philosophical support. And that also is, you know, again, it comes back to me as feeling like, you know, a bridge too far because you're simply trying to stamp out not material support of violence, but rather something that's more 
philosophical. And I, and I guess I, sh- I should let Alex also answer a bit because- Well, let me just know, quote she- here the federal statute on material support. It means any property, tangible or intangible, or service, including currency or monetary instruments, or financial securities, financial services, lodging, training, expert advice or assistance, safe houses, false documentation or identification, communications equipment, facilities, weapons, lethal substances, explosives, personnel, or transportation. The term does not include medicine or religious materials. I guess if you were going to try and read into that statute, something like philosophical philosophical support, you, I guess it would be an intangible service, but you know, we have case law on this, right? Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project. So Alex, um, what'd you say in the letter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I don't know that I can go too far beyond what Ronnie said in terms of summarizing things, but I will just say, um, you know, there had been some suggestion among, you know, legal commentators, pundits, that, you know, maybe it's possible that the state of Florida has some kind of evidence that one of these groups engaged in actual material support. And like, let me just say, I think we all, at least at FIRE, we know damn well that if the state of Florida had evidence that some SJP chapter was, you know, DMing their friends over at Hamas, um, they would absolutely be prosecuting them rather than just suggesting that the chapters be shut down. I think we all know what the what the state of Florida is capable of. Um, and, and, you know, if they had any evidence, they would be, they would be running with it. We, you know, I, I think often of, you know, what would, I mean, this is McCarthyism again, you know, what, what would it be like if, you know, during the, during the Vietnam War, for example, um, you know, we, we've seen this over and over again, if uh, states were saying, why don't you go investigate your students for a democratic society? Or why don't you go investigate um, students who are protesting against the Vietnam War, because we think that they're, you know, sort of allied with uh, interests that conflict with ours. I mean, it's, it's nonsense. And uh, certainly, if there's evidence of provision of of material support. That's a whole nother thing. But this is pure speech. We have seen nothing to the contrary. And um, if they had evidence, they would have coughed it up by now. Yeah. I mean, it's something about like the the idea that we think you might be funneling money to Hamas. So um, just uh, direct, uh, disassociate and rebrand yourself. It's like, no, 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 no. Like if you thought someone was actually committing a felony, you act, you, which it would be, uh, you you absolutely you know would behave in, in a different way now if, if they're able to produce some kind of, if there is some hidden uh, you know information that we don't know about they they, they should reveal it because I do want to re- you know also remind the, the Florida that's an incredibly serious charge uh, to be making and you seem to be basing it just on hortatory language yeah the politicians haven't necessarily covered themselves in glory when it comes to free speech amidst this conflict right you had trump on true social saying that all these colleges and universities should expel the pro-palestinian protesters unconstitutional public college uh you have desantis tim scott marco rubio saying that pro-palestinian uh speakers should have their visas revoked unconstitutional. So uh, again, they haven't covered themselves in glory. I just want to wrap up here by asking about one type of, uh, one kind of conduct that we've seen a lot on X, formerly known as Twitter, which is the tearing down of these Israeli hostage uh, posters. I don't quite understand the tactic, um, but Alex, for example, we saw at uh, NYU, I think it was outside of Stern, uh, two students tearing down one of these posters. You've seen other people confronted uh, in videos for tearing down these posters. Greg, uh, this isn't unusual in Fire's history. That is tearing down other people's posters because you have disagree with the message of those posters. Is tearing down posters protected expression? Because some people online arguing that are arguing that it is. It's the physical manifestation of a heckler's veto, yeah. <laughs> as I'm concerned. I mean, it's it's profoundly anti-speech and censorial, uh, unless there's something in the posting policy at some school that allows random individuals to take down somebody else's poster. P.S. There isn't. Um, you know, all you're talking about is, you know, destruction of somebody else's property. In fact, it happened right here in D.C., at George Washington and someone was caught on video taking down the posters and it just so happened to be caught 
by the person who would put up the posters. And there was video basically, and he said, why do you think it is appropriate to take down these posters of kidnapped Israelis and basically it's advocacy, it's pro-Israel advocacy, which obviously students have every right to engage in. And ultimately the student tearing them down had no answer. When I say they had no answer, it wasn't that they gave an answer and it was not a valid answer or it was an empty answer, literally no answer. That is not, tearing down those posters is not free speech. You wanna put up another poster next to it saying that poster is bullshit? You know, the Joe Pesci poster, you know, you you go right ahead. But silencing someone else is not free speech. Well, I think we have to run, folks. Uh, I know a couple of us have some meetings. I appreciate Great you all taking the time. On. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I appreciate you all taking the time to have this discussion. I'm sure it's not going to be the end of this conversation nationally, nor within uh, FIRE. Again, Greg Lukianoff, President and CEO of FIRE, Ronnie London, our General Counsel, and Alex Mori, the Director of our Campus Rights Advocacy Department. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. This podcast is produced by Sam Niederholzer and myself. It's edited by my colleagues, Aaron Reese and Ella Ross. You can learn more about So to Speak by subscribing to our YouTube channel. This conversation is recorded in video as well, so if you prefer to watch it that way, head on over to our YouTube channel. Most of our episodes are put there. I remind you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We will be having a survey for our listeners dropping in the next couple of days. So before that happens, and if you want to receive that survey in your email inbox, go to sotospeakpodcast.com or thefire.org and subscribe to our email newsletter. You can follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. We're also on Facebook. And if you want to email us feedback, you can do so by emailing so to speak at thefire.org. Please leave us a review in this if you enjoyed the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. <laughs>